Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors creating fiction books that range from sci-fi and mystery to graphic novels. I'm Lenny Picker, a writer for Publishers Weekly. And today I'll be speaking with Stella Cameron, whose Outcomes the Evil has been published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Hi, Stella. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Lenny. Thank you so much for inviting me. Would you start with a brief excerpt from the book? Certainly. This is from the prologue of Outcomes the Evil. Oversex slag. Pamela Gibbon was 43. She was a fit, attractive sexual woman, and she enjoyed the company of men, one at a time, a few years younger. They enjoyed her, too, a lot. But she had overheard the snide, disgusting comments in Folly on Weir's village pub, and if they were slamming her there, it wouldn't be the only place. She had stood at the, in the entrance to the public bar at the Black Dog, just long enough to take in the sneering chuckles among a group of men and women she had considered, if not friends, at least friendly acquaintances. Being approachable shouldn't make her the butt of jokes. For ten years, she had lived among these people. She and her now-dead husband bought their home, Cedric Chase, and lived there together until Charles died. Pamela had never thought of leaving. She loved the village, and although she wasn't particularly gregarious, she was on nodding and smiling terms with most locals. A flush washed her neck. She wouldn't have been at the pub tonight if she hadn't wanted an opportunity for another look at Hugh Rees. Hugh, the new manager of who the owner, Alex Duggins, had hired to fill a vacancy, had a raw vitality about him and Pamela enjoyed getting sucked into the circle of intelligent conversation he attracted. He also attracted Pamela in other ways. Although she was more than well satisfied with Harry Stroud and expected to remain so, especially now, she enjoyed Harry a lot and had half hoped she would find him a black dog. Damn them all. She'd do what she bloody well pleased including meeting Harry in the broken tower at a ruined manor house in the middle of the night to do whatever made them laugh and sweat and shout out their pleasure. At least what was left of old Ebring Manor, the ragged stone outline of the 14th century house, a badly damaged drum tower, part of the fortifying wall along the river of Windrush, the shells of several cavernous rooms, and an incongruous fireplace or two. At least it was too far out to draw local kids and too decimated to interest even intrepid tourists. And Ebring wasn't famous for anything in particular. Within a couple of hours of turning away from the black dog, she had left home on the outskirts of Folly on Weir just before 11 and struck out through the back lanes leading to the neighboring village of Underhill. Silvering from a three-quarter moon was all she needed to find her way, but she did recoil from the sounds of birds flying up from the hedgerows and animals slinking about their nightly business. Thanks, Stella. Without giving too much away, can you talk a little bit about the prologue's significance to the plot? Uh, this sets up the plot. Uh, the, the plot revolves around the demise of Pamela and uh, the subsequent involvement of a great many of the uh, people in Folly on Weir as potential suspects. This is your second Alex Duggins novel. What should readers who have not read the first know about the first book and about the characters who carry over? Alex is a divorced woman who had lost a child, philandering husband, has returned after a very successful career in graphic design 
to the place where she was brought up by a single mother, Lily, in the Cotswolds, and does what she never thought. I mean, she never, ever considered that she might buy a pub and become the owner of a pub. That's what she's done. In the first book, she settled nicely, um, still a sad person, still with a lot to get through, but making a decent life. When uh, she happens on a one morning in the cold and snow up on the hill, she trips over a body. And that's where we sort of start the ongoing story of Alex Duggins and her very good friend, Tony Harrison, who is the local village vet. And could you talk a little bit about what advantages there were for you as an author and in terms of the plotting and the character of having the detective be the owner of a pub? I'm not sure I've actually run across that particular profession before for an amateur sleuth. Uh, to me, uh, an English police, I'm sorry, I should tell you, I'm, I actually live in the United States in the Pacific Northwest, um, Washington State. Uh, but I was born in England and grew up in England. And I come here every year and usually go to the Cotswolds. And to me, the village pub is such a perfect center for the decimation of all gossipy conversation um, without, in my case, descending into the ridiculous. That's all I can say to you. That's all I know is that it just, that was it. Uh, to me, the, all of these people came alive in the pub, I could see them. My father was a publican in Portland and Dorset at one time. And I watched those people gather every day. They knew things before anybody else knew them and never hesitated to spread them. And I found it very useful as, if I dare use the word device, as a device, as the sort of hub, the center for, as a rotating center for my stories. And in terms of your knowledge about what the life of a pub was and what running it is like, was that solely derived from your experience with your father, or did you do some research as well? Oh, I've done lots of research, lots of research. I have been in many, 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 many pubs. And, and what surprised you the most as you were in pubs for the specific purpose of helping to make your character real? Nothing surprised me. Everything was exactly what, as I expected it to be. I got again that wonderful, warm, old-fashioned English feeling from the pubs and was able, with ease, to meld it with a very modern milieu. And you've mentioned that although you were born in England, you now uh, live in Washington State. Are there significant differences between uh, an English pub and a U.S. bar? Oh, good Lord, yes. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Huge. I still think of an English pub as a neighborhood um, or or a, a community gathering point. Now, I have virtually no experience. I, you know, I said huge, huge, but I have virtually no experience of American bars except, you know, the occasional things that come up along the way. And I feel no community sense in an American bar. I read a quote where you said, in essence, that the idea for the plot came to you while you were sitting at the edge of a river and watching children play. And again, without giving too much of what happens in the plot so it's not spoiled for the readers, I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on that comment. I think that comment comes from when I wrote Folly, the first oh. book. Okay, yes. And I'm quite happy to just to, to tell you that. In Folly, the story actually begins mm, 30 or 40 years, 30 years perhaps, before the current story opens, the ongoing story. And 
something happens to a child playing in the water. And as in life, in fiction, things, small things set big things rolling. And that's exactly what happened in this story. And I've read that this is not uh, your favorite question, but I, I guess it won't surprise you that an interview asks it. Um, can you talk a little bit about where the character of Alex Duggins came from? Ah, you couldn't resist it, could you? No. Nope. Um, nope. Alex just came. I mean, I can't give you something brilliant about it. Um, she's an amalgamation of people I have known, brave people I've known who've overcome adversity, and perhaps people who are a little impetuous. She's impetuous, which I like. Never afraid to take on something new and never going to be crushed and pushed down. Although, you know, she falters on occasion, she has the ability to lift herself up again. Uh, again, a quality that I admire. She was the right woman for the job. That's what happened. I mean, I had the idea of the child in the water before Alex came to me. And when Alex came, she was the right woman for the job. And the fact that she had grown as a child of a single mother, very much at that point in time um, spurned in this small community, made her more sympathetic and more workable to me. So that as the series goes on, I just feel her grow and she's just very real. She's my buddy around the corner. And I've read that you have termed or referred to the books in the series as romantic mysteries. Could you explain what you mean by that term? I have never re referred to them as romantic mysteries. The first time I saw that comment was in a review, which is a charming review, but re called it a romantic mystery. I mean, it's no more romantic than, say, Jack Reacher and his um, regular uh, um, rendezvous with various ladies. It's, it's the same. No, well, it's not the same as Jack Reacher. But, I mean, it's... All right, the sex in these books, as there is in life, and these are human people, uh, that I would not call this romantic mystery. I would call it human mystery. Okay, I apologize. I, I must have misread something uh, in preparing for it. That's quite, no, don't, don't worry. It was in a review. Okay, but before writing mysteries, you had written a series of romance novels. Can you talk about what the transition from that genre to your current one has been like? It was very natural because I wrote romantic suspense, not straight romance, and uh, much as I love straight romance, too. But I always sort of worked toward the pure mystery side. That was always my driving force. Um, so the, the transition at ver the very first was somewhat difficult because I had to convince people that, yes, I was someone who could do this as well. Um, however, fortunately for me, Seven has stepped forward and said, yes, by Jove, you can. And uh, it's been lovely. Are there themes that all your fiction, I know that before romance you wrote a literary short fiction, are there themes that you can identify that run through all of your work? I think so. I think abused child, um, I think overcoming extreme adversity, learning not to go down under the weight of sadness, uh, learning to, you know, find the humor in even the grimmest situations in life. I think those are all parts of my themes. Um, and I hope I'm still growing. I hope I'm still learning something. 
and I'm not intimately familiar with the details of your biography. Did you start writing fiction while you still were living in England, or did you only start when you moved to the United States? No, not until I was in the States. It's a completely speculative and unfair question, but do you have a sense of how your writing might have differed if you had lived in England for for most or all of your life? I think I would have been the same writer. I really do. I think perhaps, obviously, I wrote as an American for many years, uh, if you know what I mean. And um, therefore, my sensibilities were very American. But I never lost who I was to begin with and who I am, really. No, I don't think so. I think the, I think my fiction brings me... My voice is my voice. It's not going to be different because I'm in one country rather than another. At least that's sort of how I see it. And one of the reviewers of your work has compared your writing to that of Louise Penny. And I hopefully got this part of my research right. Uh, I believe I saw an online interview in which you described Miss Penny as the person, past or present, you'd most want to have as a mentor. Oh, boy, yes. Could you explain why you would have, you would chose her if you had, had the option? Well, I, first of all, I was immensely flattered by that comment. In fact, I sort of floated on it for about a week and a half. I am fascinated by her work. I think it has tremendous depth. And, I mean, every character is fully explored and developed. There's no feeling of, you know, cardboard people on popsicle sticks. It's, she really drags you in or, or invites you in. I just... I want to live in Three Pines outside Montreal. Far too much death and destruction there, but then that, we, we would have to cope with that. Uh, Louise Penny is a very fine writer. Uh, and you also uh, have a reputation for being a very prolific writer. I don't know what the current count is. The last number I saw was over, over 60 books to your credit. That's certainly an impressive output. What do you attribute your ability to be able to, to write so much to? Single-minded um, just, uh, how can I put it? Writing is like breathing to me. Um, you get up when you get up and you go to work. You have your offices. My office is in my home. I never have taken it outside my home, uh, which means that any time, day or night, if I choose, I can get up and write. And if I, do, if I can't sleep, and I frequently can't, I just write. Um, it's, it's, it's an addiction, but it's a very good and nice re- addiction. It has not... Thank God interfered with my relationships with other people. People accept me as I am. And uh, yes, I'm very prolific. I am. And I like it that way. So thanks, Stella. And thank you for listening. The book is Outcomes the Evil and Alex Duggan's Mystery from Severn House. And please join us soon for the next LitCast.